This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast where we discuss all things on the intersection of energy finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I'm here today with Lara Dong and Jenny Yang, both gas and power experts, Lara the power expert and Jenny the gas expert in China. And so I'm speaking with you guys from Houston uh, on Thursday night, and you guys have already begun your Friday and are one step closer to the weekend than I. So, so happy Friday to you both. Happy Soon TV Friday to you. <laughs> Thank you. So we, we are going to talk, and I've been trading emails with you, and I'm pretty excited about this conversation because one of the biggest kind of energy topics globally right now are the energy crunches or energy crises, depending on the words people want to use in Europe um, around some of the natural gas challenges and in, in China, obviously, with the power rationing and power uh, concerns. Um, so, so we're going to talk about that. But before, before we get into some of those details, I, I read that yesterday the Olympic torch arrived in Beijing. So that's one very exciting, but, but I guess as it relates to the power crunch or the power concerns, do, should, should we be at all concerned that the, the Olympics don't start at, at the time that we hope them to start or the Olympics remaining a priority in all of this based on what we can see right now? I would have um, little concern on that. Little concern. Very good. Right. Because the associated power demand or energy demand to make sure that the Olympics can proceed smoothly. In terms of the amount, it will be very limited. So the government is also quite determined to guarantee that energy supply. So I don't think we should worry about it. Well, good. Obviously, the Olympics were delayed from the summer last year. And so it's, it's life is starting to get back on track for us in, in many ways. So, so uh, it's good that some of these things are still expected to happen on, on schedule. But but Lara, maybe if you could help frame what's going on more broadly within. Actually, the, sorry to cut in. I, I, can I chime it. in a little bit in that uh, this is the Winter Olympics, so it's scheduled for uh, February start. So that is on schedule. Now, I think on the gas side, the impact from the Olympic is twofold. One is that we want to keep blue sky for the Olympics. Um, okay. So that, that means that it's important to have uh, adequate gas use uh, as a cleaner fuel compared with coal. Uh, at the same time, there could be some measures that uh, the government use to uh, protect, to, to, to maintain safety and um, around the event. And in general, some of the heavy pollution industries may need to shut down during the time of the event anyway, just so that we have clean air and, and uh, overall safety consideration. So that could have some, some offsetting impact on energy demand overall, as well as for natural gas in particular. Yeah, well, th- thank you, Jenny. And, and Lara, the power capacity in, in, in China is heavily exposed to coal or heavily biased to coal-fired generation, which I understand is shortages in that coal uh, capacity is what's leading to a lot of the, the, the shortages in power here today in, in October. Is that correct? Right. I tend to agree with that. 
there are multiple factors contributing to the power rationing that has been widespread into two thirds of China's provinces. But we believe the root cause is around the fuel shortage, in particular at the coal shortage. And, and the coal shortage, that, if I understand it correctly, that some of the domestic production was down, imports were down for, uh, I think, was it flooding in Indonesia and COVID-related reasons? So there's a whole lot of contributing factors to the coal shortage as well as the power rationing, correct? Um, you mentioned about um, some key reasons, key contributors to, to this coal shortage hill. But uh, I have to say, uh, domestic production of coal actually increased year-on-year year over the first few months of um, 2021. Although, okay. yeah, you were correct about the imported coal, which um, resulted from um, the decline of imported coal resulted from uh, the flood in Indonesia, um, the sanction on Australian coal import, and mm -hmm. uh, also the waves of um, pandemic in uh, Mongolia. But you have to recognize that imported coal only contribute to less than 10% of China's total coal consumption. So the key okay. issue remains about um, um, domestic coal production. And, and so despite the increase in domestic coal production, we, we haven't been able to keep up with an increase in power demand or electricity demand? That's correct. The power demand um, growth this year was um, exceptionally strong. It actually, over the first three quarters, China's GDP was up by almost 10% year on year. And um, the power demand growth re registered um, nearly 14% over the first wow. nine months, which is a 10-year record high. And am I right? Was that biased to industrial power demand? Exactly. Because the stronger than expected economic recovery activities um, driven by export play the primary role in this power demand growth. And uh, that's why the power intensity and essentially the, actually the overall energy intensity was uh, facing a lot of challenges um, um, on the upside. Okay. And I, I want to come back to the energy intensity point, but before we do, Jenny, can you help frame a little bit? You mentioned that the, the gas contribution where potentially uh, that there's a, I suppose, an increase around the Olympics due to the clean uh, the, the clean skies prioritization. How, how big of a role does gas play in China uh, power markets right now? Unfortunately, not not very significant. So in terms of the whole energy market, gas penetration is about 8%. But in the power market, gas in terms of capacity, in terms of total power capacity is about 4%. And in terms of generation, it's only about 3%. So I would say it's very difficult to use natural gas to fill in the gap for coal now that we have a coal shortage mm -hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. One is obviously the share of gas is small. Um, in fact, we did see gas firepower being used um, a lot more than usual during the April and May timeframe when we did have, a, to a lesser extent, another power shortage inside of China. Um, so during that time, coal also rose, uh, coal firepower also rose to the challenge, but not enough to keep up with power demand growth. So 
hydro demand was flat uh, at the same time. So hydropower import into South China was limited. So the local government used local uh, gas firepower fleet to ramp up generation to meet demand. And because the share of gas is so small, uh, the impact on gas demand was quite significant. Uh, but overall, now that we are in a, a lot more serious power supply shortage issue, uh, it's very difficult to, to ramp up gas to the same extent to fill in the gap for coal. The second reason is that if we look at the spot market, so if mm -hmm. we need to increase generation for to, to meet demand, uh, we really need to look at the incremental uh, supply, right? So for coal, that's the spot market. For gas, similarly, it's a spot LNG market. Um, and the prices in both markets are extremely high and they are correlated. They are related to one another. But on the gas side, spot prices to North Asia market now is above $30, about $35 per MMBTU. So that's a huge amount of price uh, tag to use in power generation. In fact, if I look at both from profitability uh, for coal fire power and gas fire power, as well as the generation costs for the for the two, uh, then gas fire power, no doubt, is a lot more expensive than coal fire power in terms of short run marginal costs, as well as uh, losing a lot more money compared with coal fire power in the current tariff situation. In fact, we did a quick calculation too. If at the current coal price, gas price, the L, the uh, LNG import lended price have to be below $15 per MMBTU to be at the same profitability level as coal fire power. That's against the $35 per MMBTU the price that we see today. And similarly, if we look back at the, the, the scale of things, we need about 10 additional cargoes for November and December in order to generate just 0.4% of power demand in these two months. And that 10 additional cargoes will certainly raise the spot LNG prices even more. But mm -hmm. the contribution to the power market is quite limited. If I could just chime in, I think Jenny just described two rounds of uh, um, power rationing in southern China in particular. And uh, there are interesting differentiation between them. In the earlier time, uh, of the year in May and June, um, the capacity and adequacy issue played a bigger role. While the fuel shortage wasn't as uh, prominent a factor, but now this round of power rationing in September was actually overwhelmed by the fuel shortage issue. So that was the the key difference. And, and the am I correct that the, the the rationing in May was limited? What was it to to Guangdong province? Um, rather than the, the 22 provinces that are being uh, affected today. And, and the power providers were still able to make profit. And today, whether coal or gas, that none of these power providers are able to, to, to make profit given the current price structure. Is that correct? That's correct. And uh, there is a structural reason in the power pricing in China in terms of the disconnect between the regulated um, and tightly controlled power price versus um, market-based coal price. And that kind of disconnect has resulted in uh, the power supply disruptions before in China. And, and so who's really feeling the, the disruption right now? I understand that the residential customers are, are in most provinces fairly insulated 
from the, the situation? So, so yes. does that put it back on the industrial customers? Exactly. That's a, that I would call it a normal situation. But in September, we did observe some rare occurrence that the residential power usage was also affected in um, the three northeast provinces. But that was mostly because of a, a grid accident, I would call it. And uh, in most of the provinces, still the industrial sectors are, are affected. And so what does that mean for the typical China resident today? Um, are, are they uh, as aware of all of the power capacity uh, constraints? I mean, the, the, if, if industry is so exposed to it, um, are some of the residential customers still paying a lot of attention to it? Actually, it took me off guard that, you yeah. know, suddenly electricity or power became the new buzzword in China since uh, September or so. So the power rationing issue caught a lot of attention to the public. And even though uh, the residential power usage were not much affected, but people will be concerned about, you know, when the industries, um, the enterprises had to ration power and curtail their production, their job, their work, um, mm -hmm. their daily life will still be affected. And, and so that is, what's the, what's the mood? You, you mentioned surprise. Um, Jenny, can you give you know, a, a little bit of description of what's the mood from you know the, the, the typical residential consumer being affected by all this right now? I think overall there's a very uh, like like Lara said is is the 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 surprise part here is because it's the power rationing after mm -hmm. decades of stable power supply in this market despite very strong power demand growth all these years. On the gas side, I, I would say that supply curtailment is a very common practice. Happened almost every single year in the winter time when there's just not enough gas supply. And so residentials usually is the, the uh, categories that are protected. So it doesn't really impact uh, residential sectors. It does impact industries, but it's a common practice. So people are aware, even as residential, uh, as, as, a, as a residence, I am aware that certain industries will need to have curtail production because they have a gas supply shortage. But if you talk about power rationing, then that's really impact the entire economy, the entire value mm -hmm. chain of whatever industries that we talk about is all impacted. Um, so it's a very important incident to figure out what's the root cause and um, what is what it is that the government and the industry can do to avoid this from happening again. And chime in. Um, one of the reasons why the public is so concerned about power price is also because, uh, as Jenny mentioned, it has widespread impact on the entire economy. So it also will contribute to the price increase, the in inflation, overall inflation would be of people's concern. So what is that, you know, as, as we're looking, you know, to today it's, you know, uh, October 21st here. You know, as we're thinking, and we've talked about the Olympics that are some 100 days away, um, the, the Winter Olympics. The, the other thing that, that I find interesting about this um, the, the shortage is it's happening during a period of traditionally non-peak demand. Um, so, so as we move into winter and presumably demand uh, increases, what, what are we expecting over the next uh, several weeks or months uh, in terms of resolution, both to industrial and residential consumers? 
We definitely recognize that uh, uh, the government has been taking a lot of measures to counter this um, power shortage, energy shortage uh, overall. And uh, we do believe that the coal output and the power supply will improve to a certain extent. But at the same time, we actually expect the incremental um, coal production will most likely fail to match the winter. As you said, the, the seasonally high um, winter energy demand. Therefore, a power rationing will most likely persist over the upcoming winter. Um, Do we think, are we in a spot now where things will get better, even if the rationing continues, or, or are we at a spot now where, where things may, may get more problematic? Well, things may change. It could, um, uh, there could be a change, but only on a, a marginal basis. In our view, it's hard to um, imagine a fundamental change. And mm -hmm. one other factor contributing to this difficulty is the restocking demand. And Jenny mentioned about the, the gas stocking um, and the coal stock level actually also are at lower level than the previous years before the winter season. And the, the northern China provinces um, uh, will enter the heating season within three weeks. And I think, Jenny, you, you published a paper just a few weeks ago on um, the, the, I guess, the, the National Development Reform Commission's policy or, or plan to, to secure, a, what was it, energy at all costs? What was that the quote in the paper? That's correct. And that is the word that we use in multiple policy that we have seen. Uh, but I think if we look at the news, it seems to make it a little bit more literally than than uh, than mm -hmm. what it really is, uh, because if we look at the details of the planning, uh, I I think there are four main things that that are very important in terms of dealing with this energy crisis. One is about focusing on the residential sector, and then this again, this is a very common practice in China when it comes to energy supply security. The residential sectors will always have the top priority, and then it will come at the expense of non-residential sectors starting out with resident, uh, sorry, industrial, uh, to a certain extent commercial as well. Uh, the second part is that um, the government seemed to pivot back to coal. We talked about before about the, the size of the coal in the, in, in the power sector and the size of gas in the power sector. So it makes a lot of sense to focus on coal. Um, and not only that it's, it's just on coal, but in particularly it's about coal production from the domestic market because this is the quickest way to release uh, production back into the market in the short term. Uh, the third one is that um, price signal. Lara mentioned coal power is uh, regulated in terms of tariff. Uh, the NDRC, the National Development and Reform Commission, the NDRC basically said that while well, pre previously coal-fired power tariff can enjoy a 10 up to 10% uplift from the mm -hmm. uh, benchmark now that 10% becomes a 20%. So that increased that return to coal-fired power. That's definitely not enough to cover the incremental cost of the fuel the way that we see in the market, uh, but it helps a little bit. Uh, in addition, this 20% limit does not apply to, um, they call a dual uh, high projects or industries. Dual high means high uh, energy consumption and high carbon emission from this project. So for this type of project, there's no limit in terms of the power price that they potentially can get from coal-fired power. So two things to impact here. One is that 
it will increase the incentives for coal-fired power to generate, to sell to this particular part of the market. But the second part, I think, is more importantly, is that there could be demand destruction from this particular set of the market, but it is consistent with the goal to reduce, um, is they call another one, another word is dual control. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a control of energy consumption and control of the energy intensity. Uh, that's a very important goal in the uh, government government priority at this point. So that also helps with balancing the power market as well as a dual control goal. And finally, I think we're still going back to power rationing uh, as the last resort, the tool of the last resort. As Lara said, you know, situation may improve, but if it does improve, it's only going to be quite marginally. So the risk of power rationing is still there. So it's better to have a plan to deal with power rationing so it happens in a more orderly manner so that we can protect power supply going into the residential sector. But again, this power rationing will also happen to dual high industries first. And again, that also is consistent with the dual control policy. If I may just add, um, up to date, you know, weeks after all the, the measures to improve uh, domestic coal production, the observation of uh, the stockpile level at um, coastal power plants remains low. There's no uh, material improvements uh, based on the data. That also explained why the coal price kept increasing, uh, even you know when we entered October. And also, Henny mentioned about this uh, adjustment of uh, coal-fired power tariff. And I have to say that government has actually turned this emergency measure into a structural change to the power market and uh, make it um, a vital step in uh, China's power pricing reform. So we're doing uh, more research to assess the longer term impact on that. Okay, so, so, so in the immediate term, it, it feels like we, we should be prepared for more power rationing and an increase in uh, coal-fired generation and obviously the emissions that, that come with that. As we're thinking more in the, the medium term and longer term, and Jenny introduced it, Lara, I hope you explain a little bit more about it, but but the uh, the dual control policy that, that Jenny just described, and, and I know it's complicated. You warned me a few minutes before we started talking that, that we need to be careful because it is such a complicated policy. But but as I understand it, this policy is part of the five-year plan and, and goes back to, I think, 2016. And as Jenny mentioned, has two main binding targets, right? That the, the, the decline in energy intensity of GDP and uh, a cap in uh, energy consumption the energy intensity being the, the, the much more important in the eyes of planners uh, metric. Is that correct? Yeah, mostly. Um, <laughs> mostly. In, right. Um, when we say dual control, obviously there are two different targets, but the energy intensity target is a binding target since uh, 2006. There was a much oh, longer so history of uh, uh, implementation and a dual control policy framework started uh, from five years ago. And uh, that was uh, the key measure, policy measures for China to achieve its uh, energy and, and climate goals. Okay, so it was 2016, so, so five years ago that the, the energy consumption mandate was added to the, the energy intensity. Right. Uh, and the, okay. the, in terms of the enforcement, I would say uh, the, the cap of energy consumption 
was also pretty stringent. But by policy design, it's not a binding target. But um, both of them are subject to a quarterly review, um, which started from uh, 2021. And, and these measures are um, enforced at the provincial level, is that correct? Yeah, it started from a, a national targets and then is um, allocated to each province. So each province will have both uh, dual control policy targets. For every year, you need to reduce um, your energy intensity to a certain percentage. And then also you have, you receive a cap of uh, your total energy consumption. And, and so how, how should we think about um, th- th- this policy and this dual, uh, these dual mandates, given what we're seeing today and how things are shaping up over the medium to, to longer term? Is what's happening right now influencing those policies or influencing the, the minds of the planners in, uh, enforcing those policies? I think there are two shows. If you think about this uh, dual control policy, there's a policy setting in the entire China's um, uh, policy framework. And the two is the implementation. In terms of the, the policy setting, we believe the dual control policy will continue being one of the primary China's policy primary tool to uh, achieve the energy and climate targets. Um, but at the same time, the implementation can be more effective. I don't think the local government would enjoy power rationing as the preferred measure because they have to endure, you know, the loss of economic growth, the challenge to the local employment, um, the price hike, inflation, etc. So uh, we expect um, such last minute measure as the power rationing would have uh, less frequency to recur. Actually, if you think about uh, this campaign style activity to meet the targets, it appeared back in 2010, when China applied power rationing to meet its uh, energy intensity reduction goal. And then again, 2017, um, when China, you know, shut down enterprises in order to uh, uh, meet the environmental air pollution reduction goal. And uh, in the future, uh, we think even though this uh, dual control policy will persist, um, but such kind of uh, campaign style implementation measures will be of lower likelihood. If it is an annual goal, the local government will most likely start moving from uh, the first quarter rather than until the last one. Okay. okay. And Jenny, as we're thinking in the middle term to long term, you know, but both of those uh, policies, the dual control policies, does that set gas up? Uh, set, set up an opportunity for, for natural gas, or, or um, should, should we be looking at uh, more, more renewables and things like that? I think it's still very important to pursue natural gas in the short to medium term, given that even just using gas to displace coal in different sectors can help reduce carbon emissions already. Uh, at the same time, gas can be used as a complementary power generation technology for renewable intermittency. So it's very, it's a, it's a friendship relationship uh, and, and not a competing, directly competition relationship. 
but I think at the same time, um, what Lara mentioned about the campaign style uh, of development, it seemed to happen a little bit more uh, too frequently uh, in, in this market from time to time. And again, it's it's all about um, the uh, incentive for different levels of government to meet certain targets. Um, the campaign style, dual control targets actually also impacted natural gas in the sense that even just in uh, this year so far, early in the year, there was a lot of coal to gas switch programs happened too quickly for gas supply to, to catch up. And so that also impacts um, uh, supply security on the gas side. So I think it has to be well planned ahead in, in this um, planned economy in terms of getting to the goal, but making sure that every step of the way supply is guaranteed. Um, in a market-based environment, then we can use price signal to send signal to suppliers and to buy but in this case, I think it takes a lot more planning uh, from mm -hmm. various different levels of the government to make sure that we don't trip along the way. Now, I think in the longer term, uh, there's a couple of things that that comes out of, of some of this crisis and the, uh, the, the long-term targets that we're talking about here. And one is from the government perspective, it's highly recognized that um, to guarantee gas supply security, we need to think more seriously about gas storage, underground gas storage being a big part of this. Uh, currently, the storage capacity in China is pretty low compared with the total demand. Uh, it's only about 7%, less than 7% of total demand. So in the winter time, that's why we have recurring supply curtailment, because we do not have enough uh, supply uh, in storage. Uh, but this is in the work. Uh, it takes a while to to get this um, facilities developed, uh, but it's a very high priority for the Chinese government and the national oil companies to develop underground storage to uh, protect gas supply in, in the winter. Uh, the second part, I think, is more on the company side. Um, given this price volatility that we have seen in the spot market, uh, we do see Chinese LNG importers eagerly trying to lock in term contract. Um, it could be oiling contract, could be Henry Hub price link contract um, so that they can reduce the price volatility expose, exposure that they have from the global market uh, to meet their gas demand growth in their respective markets. Because I think it's, it's very clear that gas market in China is a growing one. Uh, perhaps the growth will decelerate as, we, uh, as the base gets higher. And perhaps by the time we get to 2050, perhaps that's a time when we need to think more about even reducing natural gas in, in the primary energy mix so that we can get to the net zero goals by 2060. But nonetheless, mm -hmm. this is a very long term horizon for growth uh, for natural gas in this market. I think it's worth sharing uh, a very interesting development of this uh, dual control policy um, in 2021. Um, the new policy adjustment is about renewable. If you uh, as an enterprise and uh, your consumption of renewable, part of it can be exempted from um, the total energy consumption that um, uh, you conducted. So that may make it easier for the enterprise to meet their energy consumption target, while at the same time promote the usage of renewable power. So that would be helping to meet that uh, energy intensity decline with, with the renewable or the, the, the reliance on renewables, while at the same time perhaps increasing the energy consumption as a whole. Am I understand that correctly? No, I don't think it would help 
on the um, energy intensity side calculation. But uh, if you consume more um, renewable power, it will not um, increase your total energy consumption volume calculation. So you okay. can still grow your um, energy consumption, but um, um, you're still in the compliance of that um, total energy consumption cap. So that's okay. the angle. And, and looking at y'all's forecast for primary energy demand over the coming decades, it looks like renewables are the, the, the big growth. Specifically, I think it was solar and onshore wind. Is that right? That's correct. We do believe that, you know, along the journey of decarbonization over the next few decades, renewables will have to play a primary role in replacing coal in China. That's the core of the energy transition. And so, so maybe just, you know, to, to wrap it up on that, I mean, the as we're looking at what's happening now and what we expect to happen for, for the coming weeks and, and months as kind of peak demand kind of moves in, does does this accelerate that, that energy transition? Um, does it slow it down? What, what, what type of... Uh, impact is this going to have on uh, the, the thought process and the planning um, as it relates to um, some of these net zero ambitions? Uh, Lara, I'll get your thoughts and then Jenny will come to you. I don't actually see a, a, a huge contradiction between the two goals. One is focusing on the, the current power shortage issue and the other is um, a decades of efforts. So you can't rely on the future capacity or future technologies to address your problem today. So uh, for this upcoming winter, energy security will surely be uh, uh, one of the top priorities mm -hmm. um, for China. But uh, the commitment to carbon emissions reduction and the carbon pledges has been re-emphasized even through this um, round of power rationing. So the commitment is there and uh, the future path, uh, future destination, it seems to be set already. And uh, the key focus for this part of the work is mostly uh, around the future pathway. Okay, Jenny, anything to add on that? I fully agree that future uh, has already been set, that destination has already been confirmed. So there's not going to be any changes there. Um, and once we set that goal, really the entire society will be mobilized toward that direction. But at the same time, um, there, there's a the saying in Chinese, um, uh, means touching the stone to cross the river. And it's a very common practice in, in the Chinese society, and particularly when it comes to uh, policy making. And that is once we set that, that destination, we know that that's the general direction we want to get to, but how to get there is going to be a constant adjustment along the way, uh, because just, there's just so many different moving parts, uh, including those that are unknown. All right. Well, that gives us a, a lot to watch, but both in the immediate term and over the coming uh, months, years, and even decades. So, so thank you both, Jenny and Lara, for joining me today. I, I enjoyed reading the, the research that you all have been publishing, and I look forward to reading more and uh, continuing the conversation as things develop. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Kale. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com energy blog. 
You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.